I don't know if we have any structure to this, or we're just gonna fucking do it live. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, and uh, joining me today uh, from from Washington, D.C., we have Sarah Cliff and uh, Dylan Scott, who were both... uh, I, I was asleep last night. I, I went to bed ready to podcast about the skinny repeal bill that passed last night, except it turns out that it did not pass last night. Um, you guys were you guys were up up all night um, contenting. Um, and Dylan, you were you were up on the hill, right? Yes, I was. What was it like? What what went down? Sure. So we were at about midnight. We were heading into a couple of votes uh, that we thought was going to set up the the skinny repeal bill um, that had just been unveiled a couple hours before. And so, you know, I headed into the chamber, the Senate chamber about midnight expecting a, you know, not really expecting any surprises. And they had gotten 50 votes on on Tuesday to start debate and, and skinny repeal was kind of their last option. And I think all of us up there thought, well, if they got 50 votes on Tuesday, they're going to get 50 votes for this. There's just there's just no way they're going to come up short at the last moment. And it was it was surreal. Um, the, the thing, the tell was, I was in there pretty early, and the tell was John McCain was in there right from the start. Like, it was pretty empty when this vote series was getting underway. And John McCain went over and talked to Chuck Schumer for a few minutes. And you could just tell when that conversation was over that Chuck Schumer was elated. And so what did he look like? He was like just a big grin on his face and, you know, just like suddenly this buzz of energy on the Democratic side of the aisle. And then McCain went over and talked to John Cornyn, the number two a Republican in the Senate, and it was sort of the inverse. It was evident that Cornyn was uh, was not pleased with whatever McCain told him. And so that was sort of set up, and that's, I think, what first tipped off reporters who were watching the floor, that something something was weird. And, you know, because we figured all along that that Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins, who, who have voted against every health care vote or motion that's come up this week, um, that they would probably be no's on the final bill, but you needed a third, and it it wasn't obvious who that would be, but after that, the the interactions with, uh, that McCain had with Schumer and Cornyn, it seemed like <laughs> maybe he might actually he might actually do it. It went on for more than an hour, um, which was also a tell because this vote should have the first vote, which was on some unimportant in retrospect Democratic motion, should have only taken fifteen minutes, and yet leadership held it open for an hour, um, which suggested that something was weird. And you this know, was, was like a delay tactic. Yeah, it was a delay range. tactic that Democrats were undertaking, and it should have been a quick vote, and then we should have gone to voting on the the skinny repeal. And then it bill. became a Republican delay tactic to right. hold the vote open. Right, exactly, and so you know. A 15-minute vote stretched on for more than an hour. Um, There was this buzz of activity around McCain, who was just sitting um, in one of the seats on the Senate floor. And at one point, Collins and Murkowski came over and were talking to him. And it was very like, they were all like laughing and kind of, you know, patting each other on the back. Um, At another point, Jeff Flake, the other Arizona senator who serves with McCain, 
came over and seemed to be trying to like get a word in with McCain and, and wasn't succeeding. And then the, the most dramatic thing was uh, Vice President Mike Pence had come to the Senate because if there was a 50-50 tie on the skinny repeal bill, which is what we expected because Collins and Murkowski were, were thought to be opposed, then Pence would have to cast a tie-breaking vote. And, you know, after consulting with McConnell, Pence went over to McCain and they talked for more than 20 minutes. It might have been more like 30 minutes. And at times it seemed pretty pretty amiable, but then it, it seemed to sort of get down to it. And obviously I couldn't read lips. I couldn't overhear what was being said, but it, it became clear that Pence was was trying to make a last-ditch pitch to persuade McCain. At this point, I think we all believe that McCain must be a no. There was no other explanation for why they were holding the vote open. And, you know, Pence, Pence seemed to give it his best try. He, he left the floor for a minute. At one point, McCain went back um, into a back room on the Senate chamber, as I think we've now found out, to take a call from President Trump. And then it, it, it seemed like you know, after an, basically an hour where John McCain was kind of the center of attention and and building up to this uh, this dramatic vote where he might be the third Republican to kill Obamacare repeal, um, Senate leaders ordered up the vote. Uh, Collins and Murkowski voted no like we thought they would. And McCain went up to the Senate chair and put his thumb down and it was dead. It was something to watch, I got to say. It was a plot twist I didn't see coming. <laughs> Sarah, can, can you tell us what what was skinny repeal? This was a, a weird situation in which the idea started getting discussed a couple days ago. I think I maybe even wrote some takes about it, but no legislative language was even released until I had already gone to bed. Uh, what 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 was this last idea that they almost passed, but then ultimately did? Yeah, so this last idea, the one that was called skinny repeal, but which I've argued is not very skinny at all, is actually a pretty big policy bill, is the Healthcare Freedom Act. It was introduced at 10 p.m. on Thursday night. It was voted down at 1.30 a.m. on Friday morning. Um, in between, I spent a lot of time writing an explainer on this bill that very quickly became irrelevant <laughs> as um, this vote happened. But this was essentially a bill to you know do a few things. It was a bill to repeal the requirement to carry health insurance. It was a bill that it, it, one of the most bizarre things I've ever seen covering health policy in Congress. It, it was a bill that Republicans did not want it to become law, but absolutely wanted to pass the Senate chamber, which was just such a crazy thing to watch unfold. Um, this is a bill that would get rid of the individual mandate, which would really destabilize, I'd say, the individual markets without a requirement to purchase health insurance. The expectation is that sicker people purchase coverage, healthy people sit out the market. CBO thinks premiums rise by 20%. Um, they think that 16 million fewer people get health insurance. It is not the bill that Republicans wanted by any means. But at some point during this week, McConnell seemed to think this was the lowest common denominator. This was the thing he could push through the Senate. The The weird dynamic that um, began to unfold around this is Republicans agreed. Like, this was a terrible policy. No one thinks this solves the challenges of Obamacare. I don't think it. John McCain didn't think it. Lindsey Graham gave this crazy quote where he said, you know, this bill would be a policy disaster, and then went on to say, but we absolutely have to pass it through the Senate. <laughs> so it was this bill that Republicans began to see as a vehicle to start the conference process with the House that, you know, they pass something, you know, anything, and then they'll really sort out those problems in the House. So it was a bill nobody, Democrats, Republicans, 
wanted to become law, but there was no guarantee to the Senate what would happen to the Healthcare Freedom Act once it left the chamber. Paul Ryan, I mean, I'm curious for your read on this statement, Dylan, but Paul Ryan gave this like statement that was like, we'll try to have a conference, but it's kind of like, it felt like very shruggy to me. Like, who knows what could happen once you pass this bill? And that was that was McCain's kind of final issue that you, you couldn't get this guarantee from the House. One, you know, important piece of context, I think, to put around this is right now on Friday morning, we, we are not just talking about the failure of skinny repeal or the Health Care Freedom Act. We're talking about the failure of four separate health care bills in the Senate this week, that the Senate has methodically gone through the House passed bill, their own repeal and replace bill, a straight repeal bill, and now the skinny repeal bill, and rejected all four of them. Like, they have no option. So it, it feels bigger than the defeat of just one bill. They kind of looked at every option and none of them could make it through the chamber. We're sponsored this week by Parachute. Uh, They make the softest, comfiest sheets that you'll ever own. It's made from the best fabrics and materials in in Europe's renowned factories. Uh, They're really nice looking. It's it's a sort of clean, minimalist style and neutral colors. It's it's very classy. It's very modern, contemporary kind of look. It's all natural. There's no harmful chemicals or synthetic softeners. And the bedding only gets softer with time. It's it's a great kind of fabric. As you use it, it, it softens more and more. It gets really just sort of lush and comfortable as well as its nice looking design. Uh, And you can feel good about it, too, because they partner with the U.N. Foundation to donate malaria prevention bed nets. Uh, Over 16,000 have donated so far, and they give back locally with returns donated to Habitat for Humanity. So it's a a great company. It's a great pair of sheets. Uh, I really enjoy mine. Uh, So what you need to know is you visit ParachuteHome.com slash weeds for free shipping and returns. Uh, Free shipping and returns. That's how confident they are in this product. They offer a 60-night trial. So if you don't love it, just send it back. No questions asked. Uh, but they think that you are going to love it. So visit parachutehome.com slash weeds for free shipping. So Collins and Murkowski voted against all these different bills, right? But the coalitions in opposition varied to some extent. So the the sort of bigger repeal bills wound up losing Dean Heller and and some others who I guess were concerned about Medicaid, whereas this skinny repeal bill would have left Medicaid alone ostensibly, but maybe Medicaid would have gotten killed in conference committee and then wound up losing John McCain. But there was also a a bunch of senators sort of said they were going to vote yes on the hopes that the House wouldn't pass the bill, right? It, so it, in some ways, it came razor close to passing, right? It was just one vote away from passing. But in another respect, it, it seems kind of far. Like if you were to get everybody together in a room on Monday and say like, okay, guys, we need to regroup, the, the legislation that got the closest to passing in some ways has very little support. Yeah, it's not at all clear where you go from here is sort of the thing. You know, like Sarah was saying, they've now rejected every iteration of a quote-unquote Obamacare repeal that I could think of. You know, I think that was maybe the interesting thing and sort of the unstated thing among from both Paul Ryan in that tepid statement that he gave uh, promising to go into negotiations from the Senate. And, and maybe this was on the back of the minds of Senate Republicans, too. It seemed far-fetched to imagine that after the Senate failed to pass their own repeal-and-replace bill— that they had spent two months trying to pull together, that they would suddenly be able to come up with something after adding the House 
to the equation in these conference negotiations when they have even maybe even bigger differences with the House than they do with each other. I always treated it, you know, despite the rhetoric from Senate leadership, I, I always thought, granted, it's it's moot perhaps now, I always thought that skinny repeal, was a, that was a real bill that if Republicans were going to insist on passing some kind of Obamacare repeal, that seemed equally likely to me to actually become law versus any bigger repeal and Yeah, and I actually agreed with that even more after seeing the bill text. One of the things that surprised me with the bill text is it actually felt like a bill that wasn't written to fail, despite what senators were saying. The way it was written, it, um, you know, had very careful language trying to defund Planned Parenthood, trying to get that requirement back in, making small tweaks in order to move it through the reconciliation process. It had these state innovation waivers that had new language as well. There was a lot going on in this bill that felt like, you know, we saw this posturing from senators, we don't want to pass this, but I at least read, you know, reading through the bill, it felt like a bill that threw some things at conservatives saying, hey, you know, this isn't the ideal, but it repeals the individual mandate, defunds Planned Parenthood, increases state flexibility. Like, we're throwing in these things that are going to clearly appeal to the more conservative members. So I think that's something that struck me about the actual bill. And I think once you pass something out of a chamber, you know, you can make all these statements about how it's terrible policy, but it kind of gets a little bit out of your hands. It it almost reminded me um, of 2013. We had this debate over the budget sequester, this across-the-board budget cut that basically— Congress said, you know, if we're not able to pass an actual budget, we're just going to have across the board budget cuts, and this will force us to pass a budget. You know, we we definitely don't want this. This is bad policy. It is dumb to cut everything, um, you know, in this kind of happenstance fashion. But they didn't pass a budget, and sequestration went into effect, and you had all these cuts, and a policy that nobody really wanted to become law ultimately became law. And that felt like a dynamic here, and it felt like this was a bill preparing for that possibility. So what the Senate leadership was saying and what a, a critical mass of senators were saying about this bill when we when it looked like it was going to pass, right? The official message was, look, we are just going to pass this as a vehicle to get to a point where the House has passed a health care bill and the Senate has passed a health care bill. Then in conference committee, we're going to write the real bill, right? So the, the message that was going out to senators was, don't worry about it. This isn't the final bill. We're just moving the process forward. But what you're saying, Sarah, is that behind the scenes, Mitch McConnell did seem to be sweating the details. And in particular, he seemed to be trying to make sure that the sort of small things that the House Freedom Caucus had been demanding were included in the bill, right? So that if the Senate passed it, House conservatives would be able to say to themselves, this doesn't do what we wanted on Medicaid, but it has key regulatory changes and it has this key Planned Parenthood provision. uh, So we will vote for it. After all, right, there was this this kind of double game getting played in which it's not it's still not clear to me exactly who was tricking who, <laughs> but the leadership was saying, right, their their official word was we don't intend this to become law. But it really seemed like at least as a plan B, right, that if the Senate passed this, the odds of it becoming law were actually pretty good. Yeah. And, you know, look, I wasn't there with Mitch McConnell as they're writing this bill. So who knows what was going on in his head. But, you know, I spend a lot of time reading health care bills. And 
This one seemed to go to great pains. Like, let's, for example, look at the Planned Parenthood defunding, for example. There was this whole fight with the parliamentarian over whether that could be included. Um, the parliamentarian initially ruled out Planned Parenthood defunding, said, you know, this is clearly targeting one group. The way they had written it is that um, health centers that provide abortions and have more than $350 million in revenue cannot participate in the federal program. And the parliamentarian basically said, there is literally only one clinic that fits that description. It is the Planned Parenthood Network. Like, you can't do that. So they kind of, like, seem to go back to the drawing board, and they drop down to a new threshold. They say, in the bill that we got last night, the Healthcare Freedom Act, or Skinny Repeal Bill, they say, okay, you know, we're just going to hit clinics that um, provide abortions and only have more than $1 million in revenue, which, uh, from some people I've talked to, hits both Planned Parenthood and one abortion clinic in Northern California. So they can make the case to the parliamentarian, we're not targeting Planned Parenthood. Look, it hits like two different actors. Someone's doing that research. Like someone is like looking up the revenue of abortion clinics and like drafting this provision. This doesn't happen by accident. And I think you also saw this in the way it was being received by the House. Like one of the things, there was this weird, I loved your headline Dylan, yesterday, where you said it was kind of this like bonkers game of chicken, where the House was saying, well, if you send that to us, we're going to pass it. Like, we want to repeal the individual mandate. We wanted to fund Planned Parenthood. The the Senate was messaging it as like, you know, fake bill, you know, don't worry, just pass it, we'll conference it. And then the House is seeing it as like, oh, yeah, like, maybe we'll maybe we'll vote for that. Like, maybe we will score a win and pass this bill. Yeah, Matt, I think you were exactly right in terms of thinking of it as a plan B. I think that leadership was trying to give themselves options. Um, I think there would have been a, a genuine, if the Senate had managed to pass this skinny repeal bill, I think there would have been a genuine effort to try to revive a much more robust repeal and replace package in the conference negotiations. But everybody I talked to, healthcare lobbyists, staffers, um, on the Hill was very skeptical that anything productive would actually happen in conference negotiations. And so if if those negotiations fell short, then Republicans would have had this, this skinny repeal bill as a fallback option. I think, to Sarah's point, that's why it was clearly much more thought out than, than Senate leaders would have wanted you to, to believe. And I think this also, one other thing that I that's related to all this that I kind of thought as I was falling asleep last night because I now can't think about <laughs> anything else, um, was that, you know, there, I, I think we all agree that there were sort of two, two really striking things about this whole process, especially in the Senate. One was that we were talking about health care plans that were going to lead to millions of fewer Americans having health insurance. And the second was that this entire the entire process within Congress to produce these bills had become kind of patently absurd. And I thought this whole idea of passing a bill that we don't want to become law was sort of like the the climax of that absurdity. And it's it's striking to me that even though the, this almost managed to pass anyway, you could argue that those two things, those two sort of fundamental absurdities about the Republican healthcare debate actually managed to kill it in the end. Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski had said for months that they wouldn't vote for a plan that led to millions of people losing health coverage, and and they held to that throughout the week. And then John McCain, um, though he took a little longer than I think some of us would have liked or would have expected um, after giving his his rousing floor <laughs> speech about returning the Senate to some kind of normal order, in the end, I think that was probably his primary motivation as he saw... I mean, you know, he saw how ridiculous this was. And I think he, a guy who in his position kind of actually had the absolute freedom to do whatever he wanted, decided that he wasn't going to, he wasn't going to buy into to the absurdity that we'd seen over the last week. 
you guys know about Lyft, uh, I'm sure. Uh, this is a ride-sharing company. You get the app on your phone. It, it takes you where you want to go. Uh, it's also a, an opportunity to make some money if you've got a car and, and you want to drive. So Lyft knows that their drivers are what keeps them moving. Uh, the drivers are, are the backbone of the company. Uh, so they do everything that they can to make sure their drivers are happy on every trip. That's probably why 9 out of 10 Lyft rides get a perfect five-star rating. Uh, and as a driver, you could earn hundreds of dollars a week plus tips. Uh, so you want to earn more money? You drive more. It's never been easier to give yourself a raise. They'll be the first rideshare platform with tipping built right into the app uh, because getting tips shouldn't depend on your passenger, you know, what happens to be in their pockets. You keep 100% of the tips and they add up fast. Drivers have been paid over $200 million since the feature was first introduced. And Express Pay lets you get your money almost instantly instead of waiting for weeks. Lyft has even taken the guesswork out of pickups. The new AMP device uses color coding to help passengers find their drivers. Uh, so join the ride-sharing company that believes in treating its people better. Go to lyft.com slash weeds today and you can get a $500 new driver bonus. That's lyft.com slash weeds, lyft.com slash weeds. It's a limited time only and terms do apply. I'm struck, though, by how many senators were willing to go along with this McConnell gambit. Because, oh, again, yeah. to, to return to the Planned Parenthood point, right, to pass a bill that you intend for the other side to not agree to, for, for the other House of Congress to not agree to, it's not an unheard of thing, right? If Senate Republicans had genuinely wanted to guarantee that the House would not pass this bill, they could have inserted poison pills into it, right? They could have done like the opposite of defunding Planned Parenthood and put something in that was like super abortion-y and then said, <laughs> look, 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 this is just to make sure the House doesn't pass it. Or they could have cut the budgets for House staffers to zero dollars, right? You'd throw that in as a rider and then it won't pass the House as written. You guarantee that there has to be a conference process. But McConnell never did that, right? He did not do a single thing to try to ensure that the promises he was making to senators would actually come true. And yet he got Lindsey Graham, he got Ron Johnson. I mean, a bunch of senators, at least their public statement was, we trust Mitch McConnell and we trust Paul Ryan, even though none of the actions that either of them are taking in any way suggests that they ought to be trusted on this. And McCain seems to have, at the end, decided that he was not interested in being lied to in that kind of fashion. But a, a suspiciously large number of senators, to me, were willing to to go along with that. And that's really sort of been a, a hallmark of this thing from, from the beginning, that you had a bunch of members who, once they got into the, it's called the Votorama, right, when they were voting on all these different bills, who voted no on the sort of bigger repeals with Medicaid cuts. But they could have killed this way earlier, right, on, on the motion to proceed, but they chose to go along with it. And, and I still don't, a hundred percent know why, and and John McCain was was also in this camp, right? Uh, Sarah, you were you were saying um, before we started that that the plot twist was a little implausible. I mean, to me, what made it implausible was that the staging was perfect two days ago when John McCain dramatically flew back to D.C. from Arizona, recovering from his illness. He delivered this thunderous speech that got, it got rave reviews from the sort of John McCain fan club in the media. And the speech was about how this process was ridiculous, how the Senate had to go back to working its normal way. And that would have been a perfect time, in part because it was during regular business hours and people were watching for McCain to vote no and scuttle this process. 
But then he voted yes. So having done that, I mean, I had given up on on thinking that McCain was going to buck leadership. It's very, even now that it's done, I can't really understand what the pivotal senators, uh, the people Rob Portman, Shelley Moore Capito, Dean Heller, who we've been talking about on the show for months, like, I don't understand what they were thinking or what they were hoping to accomplish through any of this. Well, I think this segue is actually something I want to ask you guys about. I read it as just this, like, really strong desire to, like, call something Obamacare repeal and pass it and, and, like, check that check that box, like, get that done. That drive has been much more strong than I had thought going into this, although it has—it surprised me the vote didn't go through last night. You know, I had thought, you know, oh, this is just like the House. You know, they they would fail to do it at the first time, but they'd, you know, go on a recess, think about what they did, come back, pass this thing. And they couldn't. And I'm curious, but you also have all these senators who have expressed a lot of concerns, but still cast those votes that Matt was talking about. So I'm curious, like, how dead do you guys see Obamacare repeal as? Like, does this thing end here? My view is is no, and I can delve into that more later. But I'm curious how you guys think about how dead is this thing right now? Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, yeah, I think we've now been conditioned to never believe <laughs> that Obamacare repeal is, is actually dead. But at the same time, it, it feels like it has to die at least for a while for the reasons we talked about before, that the Senate just rejected almost every conceivable iteration of of Obamacare repeal, from the most robust repeal and replace uh, plan to the lowest common denominator, you know, and and then there's there's just there starts to become schedule issues. The Senate's about to go home for a month. Um, they've got to keep the government open. They've got to raise the debt ceiling. At some point, if they're actually serious about overhauling the tax code before twenty the twenty eighteen elections, they they've just got to move on to that. And so I, I would be curious. You sounded like you have a case to make. I would be curious, like what the the revival of Obamacare repeal would look like now. Like I, I I'm certainly not. I'm certainly not ready to declare it dead for good. But in a way, this feels different than, say, when the House failed in in March. And it was sort of like, you know, I could see them just trying to 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 make over the plan that they were working on and and maybe they can bring it back and get the votes, which they ultimately did. But it, the way, in a way, that what the Senate just did this week in rejecting three different plans feels feels more definitive. Well, I don't know that this, I don't even think this is going to happen. But based on the positions we've seen people take, I do feel like we have started to see the outlines of what a bipartisan alternative might look like, right? Which is that by the time you got down to the skinny repeal bill, you had Republicans who were willing to give up on the dream of an enormous tax cut financed by an enormous Medicaid cut. Right. Mm. In the first few iterations of this process, right, certainly in the House and really in, in Mitch McConnell's initial Senate draft, that really seemed like it was what Republicans were trying to accomplish. And that was fundamentally unacceptable to Democrats. There was no Democrat in either House of Congress uh, really ever conceivably is going to vote for a bill like that. Once Republicans indicated that when they talk about Obamacare repeal to say that what they're really talking about is the mechanism of the exchanges, it begins to seem to me like you could do something 
in the realm of a bipartisan step. And in particular, Republicans, not in the skinny repeal bill, but in a bunch of the other bills, they repealed the individual mandate, but then they sort of replaced the individual mandate with these these mandate light tactics, the uh, six-month delay, the 30% surcharge. And I, I think Democrats, sensible Democrats, would be willing to go along with something like that if that's what Republicans need to tell themselves repealing Obamacare is. If in exchange, Democrats got you know, these these quote-unquote fixes, the cost-sharing reduction money, uh, the restoration of risk corridors and, and reinsurance money, the stuff that Democrats think is necessary to stabilize the exchanges. And you could have there a sort of a core bargain in which Republicans say, okay, we have repealed and replaced this unconstitutional, tyrannical individual mandate, and we've also shored up the stability of the exchanges. That would be like the germ of a little mini bill on which you could then hang, you know, whatever it is that members who want to bargain want to do. So if that's they want to give in to the medical device lobbyists and repeal that tax, you know, you could do that. If you want to pick up that uh, bronze plans idea that some moderate Democrats had, you could put that in. You know, the math of a sort of inside-out centrist compromise is always difficult to, to know. You could get a dozen votes or you could get 90 votes, depending on sort of how people feel about the idea of the bipartisan compromise. But I don't know that Republicans have even quite realized themselves how much they had talked themselves down from the idea that Obamacare is this hideous evil. Uh, if you're willing to accept Medicaid expansion and separately in different bills, you're willing to accept the idea of tax credits to subsidize a heavily regulated individual market, you're kind of back to where Barack Obama thought he was in 2009, which was, you know what, this proposal, it, it's really not so radical. It's really not something that should be totally unacceptable to Republicans. And maybe we can make a deal here. Uh, that doesn't seem to me to be where their heads are this morning. Uh, but I'm also far from Washington and can't really tell. Oh, you're in Susan Collins' country. Mm -hmm. uh, Susan Collins would definitely like to do a deal. That is oh, true. For sure. Yes, I'm sure the, the Susan Collins fans around you are, are waiting for that moment. You're unique. I'm unique. Uh, you don't walk like everyone else. You don't talk like everyone else. And so, of course, you don't sleep like everyone else. Uh, but so many people are trying to sell one-size-fits-all mattresses to the public, and, and it just doesn't work for shoes or clothing or, or anything else that's personal, and, and you shouldn't accept it for your mattress either. And so now you don't need to, thanks to Helix Sleep. You just go to helixsleep.com, you answer a few simple questions, and they do a 3D biomechanical model of your body. Uh, they've got proprietary algorithms they developed with the help of the world's leading ergonomics and biomechanics experts, and the result is going to be the most comfortable mattress you've ever slept on because it's personalized to you. A great feature is for couples, they customize each side of the mattress separately uh, because, you know, just because you're sort of destined to, to spend your life with another person doesn't mean you have the exact same sleeping style. It's a fantastic feature. So your mattress arrives at your door in about a week and shipping is completely free. That's why everyone from GQ to Forbes is talking about Helix Sleep and you've got a hundred nights to try it out. They're really confident that you're going to love it, but if for some reason you don't love it, they'll pick it up for free and they'll give you a full refund with no questions asked. So just go to helixsleep.com weeds and you get 50% off your order right now. I agree with Matt. It feels like what repeal is really shrunk a lot this week to exclude Medicaid, which I think is something that surprised a lot of us. I've been really surprised by Medicaid's political resilience that this is the program that, um, I, I mean, surprised and not surprised. Surprised in the sense like this is usually one that's vulnerable to cuts, has a low income 
has a low-income membership. It's not even—it wasn't Democrats' first choice for expanding coverage back in 2010. I think if Democrats had their way, they actually would have given everyone private insurance. But CBO said it was cheaper to give a lot of people Medicaid, so they gave a lot of people Medicaid. Um, You know, so surprised that that was so strong. Not surprised because in all of my reporting, Medicaid is so much more popular than Marketplace. Medicaid enrollees love their coverage— I hear very few gripes about limited doctor choice. Um, I hear a ton of gripes from marketplace enrollees saying, I hate my deductibles and my premiums, and um, a little bit of resentment of people on Medicaid saying, why do those people get this great free program? So I, I understand on that level, you know, people enrolled in Medicaid, they really like their Medicaid, and they seem more willing to speak up on behalf of it versus marketplace enrollees who have a lot of, like, fair gripes about their coverage and the cost of it. So I think this week it feels like what actually is Obamacare repeal, it shrunk a lot to really focus on the marketplaces, which are often like when people think of the of Obamacare, I think even before this debate, they kind of thought of it as healthcare.gov, the expansion of private insurance. And that's a place where I feel like there could still be some pretty decently large discussion of repeal and replace. And the way I would see it going down is something that Donald Trump tweets about a lot is that the Trump administration, you know, takes actions that destabilize the marketplace and really cause insurance companies to leave, premiums to rise. Um, they're working with a fragile marketplace. I think the Obama administration never got the robust competition they wanted, but they were always able to keep it afloat. They always had at least one health plan in every county, which was kind of the bare minimum you needed to keep this thing running. The Trump administration, you know, with this continued uncertainty about if they'll pay cost-sharing subsidies, they could stop paying the cost-sharing subsidies if they really want to create a crisis. Um, They have already cut off some enrollment grants um, to help people sign up in 18 different cities. They could stop enforcing the individual mandate is another one that would scare insurance companies out of the market. So the way I could see, you know, the path to repeal coming back, it seems to start with a bit of a manufactured crisis of, you know, creating this instability in the marketplace and then saying, well, look, like we need to do something. Like we need to, we can't mandate people to buy really expensive insurance. Like we have to get rid of that individual mandate now that premiums are so high and people don't have any options. But I don't know. I mean, that's like a narrower path than like Republicans come together and repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. Like it it is a certainly like a narrower space that Republicans are working in right now. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess the question is, is is anyone ready to sort of take take the lead on doing something new now or do they want to just shuffle off back back to return? It, it seemed to me that John McCain was the most forceful advocate for changing the process, but not John McCain's not really ever been like a healthcare guy in in his time there. I don't feel like you've seen the sort of steps that it would take from a senior member to get a new process up and up and running, unless uh, Dean Heller, who has often tended to sort of uh, make himself scarce at critical moments, would need to would need to step up and, and lead. Because in an odd way, Collins and Murkowski, by taking such a strong stance, have marginalized themselves within their own caucus. But I think this is where Lamar Alexander comes in, right? Like 
He's the guy who's, you know, very- Lamar. Lamar is the, the man of the hour now, right, Dylan? Or? I do. Yeah, I think there's more, you know, there's been maybe more happening behind the scenes in terms of at least laying the groundwork for a bipartisan agreement down the road that we may realize. Um, there's been a lot of reports of at least like scattered meetings over the last few months. And yeah, Lamar Alexander has announced that- he, Who is Lamar Alexander? Lamar Alexander, the senator from Tennessee, uh, has announced that the uh, Senate Health Committee that he chairs is going to hold some hearings on the individual insurance market coming up. I do think there's some other figures like Rob Portman of Ohio, Shelley Moore Capito of West Virginia, some of these centers that we've talked about all along who seemed pretty reluctant about the repeal bills that Republicans have been coming up with. I think they could could kind of help forge a uh, some kind of bipartisan gang, if you will, um, if if that's the direction they decide to go. I did take note, and it could have been nothing. It, you know, it was two thirty in the morning, and I was a little bit loopy. Um, but Mitch McConnell did end his speech last night as he was kind of conceding that Obamacare would repeal was dead for the time time being. He ended it by saying that he. I won't get the wording exactly right, but that he looked forward to hearing the ideas from his colleagues across the aisle. And so, you know, I think everybody's going to have to lick their wounds. Um, certainly any any path to a bipartisan health care deal is going to be fickle given how politicized Obamacare has become. But I don't think, you know, I, I don't think it's inconceivable at this point. And I do think given, you know, how messy the last couple months has been, especially in the Senate, where the Senate is always more ripe for for bipartisan action, that, you know, some some Republicans might decide that that's, that's just really the only way to go. They took their shot at repeal and they couldn't do it. And so now they, they have kind of no choice but to turn to Democrats. And I will say it's a lot of their states that have the most at risk marketplaces. So these are people who have a, you know, stake in the game. Most of the states that have these struggling marketplaces are really the places represented by Republicans. They've been less active in implementing the Affordable Care Act. So if you sabotage the marketplaces, if you try to push towards collapse, like California's going to figure it out. Like they really want Obamacare to work. They're going to make assurances to their carriers. New York state's going to figure it out. Washington state's going to figure it out. It's really the more um, Republican-led areas that are, are facing the possibility that people will go to buy coverage on healthcare.gov next year and and their voters will have no options to sign up for. So here's where I think some of the other stuff that's been happening this week, I, I know you two guys have been heads down covering healthcare, but it, it starts to come to mind because if I hadn't known anything about Donald Trump, or the way he runs his administration, I would expect that one thing that happens at this point is Health and Human Services stops these kind of sabotage efforts, and they start trying to help out their Republican governors and Republican senators in red states, in rural areas where there hasn't been as much uh, insurer interest, and start trying to work in a pragmatic way to you know, not pour tons of new money into the system, but to try to make this work as best as they can. And then to say, I, Donald Trump, fixed this failing Obamacare system. That's like, that's what I would think. But what we've seen this week is the president of the United States 
launching a feud with his own attorney general. You've seen a new White House communications director appointed uh, who is saying he's calling the FBI in on the chief of staff. You had, this is even before this bizarre interview he gave with, with Ryan Lizza of The New Yorker, uh, where he uh, he said quite a number of vulgar things uh, about Steve Bannon. Uh, you had the president announcing a new ban on transgender people from serving in the military, apparently without having informed the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff or the defense secretary. Uh, you then had the, the uniform military saying, well, the president tweeted some stuff, but that's not a real order, so we're not doing it. <laughs> it's a kind of a, a coming apart of the executive branch of government that is is remarkable in American history. And it it raises the question of whether they have the capacity to go through the sort of ordinary take stock, what do we do now checklist, right? That you would want to see, I would expect you would see a phone call between Tom Price and the governor of states that have bear counties in which they try to talk about who do we have to have a meeting with? Like, how can we how can we get this done? Like, which insurers should we be calling? What are their concerns? Uh, what are the, the regulators, the hospitals? Who are the relevant stakeholders here? Let's get something going. Um, not out of necessarily even love for Obamacare, but just because you you like to be able to say you did something for your constituents. Um, instead, Trump is tweeting this morning about how the Senate should change the rules and not have filibusters, uh, which, as far as I can tell, has nothing to do with anything. And it's like an asleep-at-the-wheel executive branch. Well, so, you know, Dylan and I, we are both on a press list for Health and Human Services. We get their press releases when they put out statements about Obamacare. And we will see if this changes. And there's actually a great story from um, Margot Singer Katz of the New York Times where she summarizes this attitude. But their attitude towards Obamacare is they want to publicize how terribly it is going. Everyone has an email like, list like this. The Obama administration would send out stories of premiums are going down and like, look how cheap this is and look at all these people getting coverage. When it went to the Trump administration, it has been a consistent barrage of insurance companies are dropping out. They send us emails when premiums are going up. They've started sending out a map each week that shows all the counties that have um, no health insurance companies signed up to sell. They're in, like, bright red, just kind of outlined, like, looking at what a problem this is. Everything we've seen so far, you know, from HHS, even a statement last night from Secretary Price where he said, you know, we're going to look at ways to give people relief from the Affordable Care Act. It wasn't like we're going to stabilize the marketplaces, we're going to make sure— you know, there's insurance companies. Was, we're going to give people relief from this law. It, it all felt like a backdrop to a legislative process. Like, well, we need to repeal Obamacare because, like, look at how terribly it's going. Like, like premiums are going up and no insurance companies want to sell. It is an odd strategy to pursue in the lack of a legislative process. But from everything we've seen from Health and Human Services, I don't I don't see, like, a changing of course. Um, you know, we did this Weeds in the Wild episode a few months back about, you know, the Obamacare marketplaces. And, you know, under Obama, there was this guy, the CEO of healthcare.gov, Kevin Cunahan, who was crisscrossing the country, like, making sure that every county would have at least one health insurance company. Like, he was kind of the guy in charge of the operation. As far as I know, there's no guy at the Trump administration. <laughs> like, there's no one flying to Nevada where 14 counties don't have health insurance companies saying, like, what can we do to get you to, to yes? Like, what can we do to help get an insurance um, company in here? 
And this posture seems to be built for for an Obamacare repeal environment. I don't know what happens to it, like, when this is the law you got and, like, you're the administration in charge of making it work. Yeah, and I, I mean, this may come dangerously close to to game theorizing, but... <laughs> it's time for some game theory. <laughs> I, I, I do wonder, you know, it's sort of like paradoxically... Republicans have gone through this very high profile, very public fight over health care. And I feel like paradoxically, even though they failed, I wonder if they have unwillingly maybe taken ownership of American health care now. I mean, there's a lot of polling about how, you know, the public going forward thinks Republicans are responsible for what happens in health care. And, you know, to quote our president, it's obviously very complicated. And so I don't, you know, and who can, so who can blame the public for ha- not having nuanced opinions about what's working and what's not and whose fault it is. And, and so I wonder if, to your point, Sarah, now that the possibility of repeal seems to be off the table. How how tenable it'll be to try to not make the law work if all you're doing is risking blowback on yourself and your administration and your party. But then again, to Matt's point, you know, this is not a, an administration that's necessarily behaving rationally, and so maybe maybe they won't feel that kind of compulsion to just suck it up and and try to make it work. But I just think that kind of underlying idea that, you know, Americans either think healthcare is working or it's not. And, you know, when you're the party that controls all the levers of government in Washington, it, it's strange credulity to say that, well, it's not our fault that it's not working. I mean, I, I agree with that. And I think the literature agrees with that. The conventional wisdom agrees with that. But a dangerous situation that we were in for America is that everybody thought Donald Trump was not going to win the Republican primary nomination. And when he did, everybody thought he wasn't going to win the general election. And then he did. So I think it would be understandable if Trump believes that the laws of politics don't don't apply to him. You know, my 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 dad uh, wrote a novel about a guy who who survives a, a plane crash and has a psychological reaction to it that's apparently uh, relatively common, where you you come to believe you know you're invincible, right? And it it becomes very dangerous to have survived against the odds. And I feel like Trump, you know, is not behaving like a person who is in over his head, who needs to learn from experts about how to do his job, who needs to listen to people about how the system works. He's behaving like a guy who blew off all the smarty pantses and and the know-it-alls and won. And I think he's wrong to act like that. I, I wish he wouldn't. I think he would be better off and the country would be better off. But I think it's also very sort of profoundly understandable if you try to put yourself in his shoes that he would think that why does he have to listen to these morons on a podcast you know (laughs) he's the president um and if he wants to say this is all barack obama's fault like he's gonna make that work yeah um and you know one other element i want to bring into this you know for some I, i spend a lot of time talking to people who rely on the affordable care act for coverage and they follow this news very closely and the decisions that get made will really affect their lives but just this debate, just opening debate this week, the House passing a bill, it's already affecting a lot of people. A lot of them I spent, you know, most of Tuesday talking to Affordable Care Act enrollees um, who have changed their lives in some way because of the uncertainty around the healthcare debate. Um, A lot of them are weeds listeners. So thank you so much for doing the interviews and for listening. 
you know, I've talked to a couple um, that is looking into moving to the Netherlands because one of them has diabetes and she doesn't think she can afford her insulin. I've talked to another couple that already moved from Georgia to New York, just purchased an apartment in New York City because they think, you know, if there is some kind of repeal or collapse, they'll be safer in New York. Um, the wife in that couple is a breast cancer survivor, so she doesn't really feel comfortable going without health coverage and thinks if pre-existing conditions came back, she would not be able to get a policy. The uncertainty can be a very powerful policy in itself. And right now, the Trump administration, congressional Republicans are creating um, plenty of that. People who rely on the Affordable Care Act for coverage, they don't feel like they can necessarily wait to see the final bill. They have to make decisions about where they live and what kind of job they have. Um, you know, I spoke with one Obamacare enrollee who asked that I not use his full name, but who just told me a really sad story about, you know, ever since the House passed their health care bill, he started scaling down his doses of his antidepressant and his anti-anxiety medication because he's trying to stockpile them in case at some point his health insurance goes away or even, you know, he follows the news really closely and he's worried premiums are going to spike so high that he won't be able to afford coverage anymore and that he should have these medications just in case. It makes it harder for him to focus at work, harder to maintain his personal relationships. You know, this is all to say there are big decisions to be made in how the Trump administration manages the Affordable Care Act, but they've already made the decision to make the future look very, very uncertain. And that is affecting a lot of real people in a very real way right now. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing more that health insurers or insurance companies hate more than uncertainty. And that inevitably is therefore going to trickle down to the people that they are actually covering and the people whose, whose lives and well-being depend on, on this whole thing functioning. I mean, I, I guess, you know, the best hope for a, for a turnaround on this would be that exactly as, as you guys are saying, I mean, insurance companies have a real sort of stake in this game and they have executives and Donald Trump, at least at times, seems to kind of enjoy the idea of sitting down with uh, successful business people and listening to what they have to say. There's been remarkably little sort of White House stakeholder engagement with any of this, or frankly, on the legislative side either. But I guess one thing you can say on Trump's behalf, sort of, is that he's quite mercurial and has been known to change his position on things extraordinarily rapidly. So just because a sort of sudden turn to working cooperatively with insurance companies and hospitals to stabilize exchanges would be totally... Uh, against everything he said for the past six months, it would be kind of in line with what he said for the six months before that. Uh, so anything's possible. We arguably have a precedent for it. You know, in January, Trump accused uh, drug companies of getting away with murder. And then he sat down with some pharma executives in the White House and then produced a very pharma-friendly uh, drug pricing plan just a few weeks or it might have been months later. And so, you know, yeah, it's 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 it feels like anything is possible if you could just get some insurance and hospital executives into a room with him. Anything is possible, as we have learned this week in the past six months. And one thing that is definitely possible is to recommend the weeds to your friends and family. And I think you should do that. You should rate us on, on iTunes and, and tell everyone about how wonderful we are. Uh, you should check out the Vox Media Podcast Network's other fine shows, Worldly uh, about foreign affairs. Uh, I think you're interesting uh, about pop culture. Um, thanks to, uh, to Dylan and, and Sarah for, for joining me after uh, a really late night and a, and a really hard uh, week of work. Uh, thanks to our, our producers, Peter Leonard and, and 
Jillian Weinberger. Uh, thanks to our, our friends at Maine Public Radio who uh, helped uh, set these broadcasts up this week. Uh, thanks to you all for, for listening. We will see you next week.